Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Edie Hirsch, Don Hirsch. He is one of the renowned educators of the 20th century and the 21st century, I think, still going strong. Uh, He started his career as a scholar of Romanticism, Romantic poetry in particular, and as a literary theorist. In the 60s and 70s, his academic career spent mostly at Yale and University of Virginia. With the 1987 book, Cultural Literacy, Don entered public life uh, with a bang, (laughs) six months on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Many books have followed, along with a foundation he started called Core Knowledge, which provides K through eight curricular materials to schools across the country. I should say I'm on the board of core knowledge have been on the board. I've been an admirer for Don for many, many years, even going back to his, his literary theory days. Uh, he has a new book out entitled just this month entitled How to Educate a Citizen, The Power of Shared Knowledge to Unify a Nation. Welcome, Don. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, well, let's just, get, just give us some basic definitions. What do you mean by, quote, shared knowledge? I, you have to contextualize that just a little. Shared knowledge is a pretty obvious phrase. That I, you and I uh, know something in common. But the reason for its Im- importance goes back to those uh, uh, theoretical days you mentioned when I uh, was studying psycholinguistics. And in the 60s, there was a great discovery, which was... in. It, implicitly obvious to everybody, but it had never been really fully comprehended how important it was. And that was the uh, importance of unheard, unspoken knowledge in order to make what is spoken understood. So you cannot understand what I'm saying, and I can't understand what you're saying, without having a heck of a lot of knowledge in common, shared knowledge, uh, that will uh, disambiguate the language, to amplify the language, and particularly, uh, and, and, and make it more definitely understood. That's the way people communicate. They communicate not just in language, but just in language as part of a speech community where the people in the community share the same background knowledge so that they can understand what's being said or written. 
so that's it in a nutshell, why shared knowledge is so important. It's because it makes language comprehensible. And it, if we didn't have shared knowledge, then it would take us 10 minutes to communicate something that ordinarily takes us 15 seconds to communicate. That's a, that's <laughs> a really good way of saying it, Mark. Excellent. And by the time, actually, by the time you're taking up the 15 minutes, uh, some of the first part of the explanation has fallen out of memory. So you're not really, <laughs> you're not really necessarily getting very far. And, and if I could fast forward, you should think uh, of the, uh, of the schoolroom, which we will presumably come to, but in in that classroom, uh, there are a lot of uh, students, and there's a teacher, and the teacher has knowledge that's to be communicated to these kids, and some of the kids have the background knowledge they need to understand what the teacher is saying, and some of them don't. So that's an unfortunate situation which just exacerbates itself as time goes on in the classroom. And the disadvantaged kids fall further behind. And, and we know that that's what actually happens uh, in American classrooms these days. And to prevent that happening, so this points not only to the problem of how to teach a class well, but also how to overcome inequities, because un until the disadvantaged child has the background knowledge needed to understand what's going on in the class, then that child will fall further and further behind. And uh, so that leads to all kinds of implications for what schooling should be like. But if I, and then take a step forward, if, if a nation itself is not a speech community where people share that background knowledge, then communication becomes uh, very difficult and and hostilities arise like the ones we're seeing even today. This is why part of your subtitle is Unify a Nation. Yes, exactly. Because when people can talk to each other and speak the same language, there's a sense of fellowship or, or community arises. Right. Now, the when cultural literacy came out, I, I gather that, I, I was just in graduate school at the time, but I gather that the idea of shared knowledge wasn't really where the controversy lay. It, it raised the issue of, well, what is going to be the shared knowledge? What should be the shared knowledge? Now, I know how you answered that in 1987. It was your list, right? The, the, all, all of the, the, the details, which were sort of, it, it wasn't, it was really just sort of an indicator, I think, more than a real fixed set, established uh, set of facts and names and dates and events and so on. Today, Don, in, in here, what is the way in which we determine now the right shared knowledge, the knowledge that the fifth grader who is missing some things that other fifth graders aren't? Well, it's changing, Mark. Uh, uh, the, the background knowledge uh, always changes. New things happen and new illusions come about. But uh, uh, basically, my general 
position is, well, it has to be intergenerational. You can't leave us old folks completely out of the picture and start teaching a lingo that nobody except a, a, a tiny portion of the population can understand. So that itself, the intergenerational character of what you need in a society, uh, predicts a certain slowness and conservatism and change. Uh, that's inherently necessary if you want everybody to be included. Okay, that's point one. But on the other hand, it's always changing at the edges. Uh, and the real question then becomes, when that change occurs, uh, what shall we do to make everybody included? Uh, it's an inclusiveness, both psychologically and actually uh, uh, emotionally, I mean, and actually, uh, that inclusiveness is a really important part of the of the picture, particularly with people feeling left out in our society. And so, it, it's incumbent on the people who make the school curriculum to try to affect, to try to include everybody, including the older generations that are still around. I mean, you, so that's the structure of the problem that, that needs to be solved. And, and, and so I'm not clear whether you wanted the structure of the problem or how you go about fixing it. Your, your, main, your main goal, your, your first argument is getting people to understand the importance of background knowledge in the teaching, even in the early grades of reading and writing and science and so on, but uh, also the adjustment of teaching and the curriculum to reinforce that shared knowledge. I mean, it, it is very important to you that everyone read a certain amount of the same books in education, right? Of the, of, well, I don't care how it's conveyed, but having the same, yes, the same background knowledge. Absolutely. Don, why do you feel the need to argue the shared knowledge, background knowledge point? Are you at odds on this with the ed schools, the teacher training, the theories of pedagogy, the standards development that prevail in America today? Yes, I am very much so, uh, Mark. And uh, that you have to uh, understand how it is that the current uh, education instruction for, for the, the instruction for teachers has de-emphasized and left out this uh, commonality, need for substantive commonality in, in what we teach our children. And that is, two th there are two things. One is the emphasis on the individual child and how it's so important to accommodate uh, teaching and differentiate teaching for the individual child. It's called child-centered education. That's one important view of the education school. And you can see that that kind of individualism uh, is not in itself conducive to uh, commonality. And the second point is that if you're teaching and, and Dewey, who's a father, intellectual father of all this, saw this years ago. The, the problem with that is then you have a lot of diverse confusion 
in the classroom with everybody studying different things. And so uh, that's chaotic. So how do you avoid the chaos? Uh, as a footnote to all that, of course, we haven't avoided the chaos in the classroom. But Dewey said you could do it by um, the fact that you were teaching general skills. And what's terribly important to understand is, and, and Dewey would have changed his view on all this given current cognitive science, there is no such thing as a general critical thinking skill, there is, which our schools are constantly talking about. There, these general skills don't exist. All skills, intellectual skills, physical skills are domain specific. Uh, you don't become a good golfer by becoming a good tennis player. And uh, similarly, in, in the sphere of intellectual life, you don't become good at understanding political science by understanding chemistry. Uh, you simply have to learn a lot of facts, a lot of facts. And our education schools have been opposed to learning a lot of what we call usually the, the word mere is put in front of facts, mere facts. And that doesn't mean it's incoherent, isolated facts that you need to know. You need to gain a lot of knowledge to gain a skill. And so uh, the whole scheme of elementary education that we have been engaged in is based on a false uh, theory. And uh, that theory has been exploded in cognitive science. It's not agreed upon by anyone in our departments of cognitive of psychology. So you have this situation in our universities where the education schools are teaching theories and ideas that are different from uh, the theories and ideas that are taught in our psychology departments. That's unacceptable. There's only one science, only one truth. Why is it unacceptable? because <laughs> you have two conflicting theories, uh, one of them is going to be wrong. And <laughs> you can be darn sure it's not the one where you have very elaborate and traditional scientific controls uh, over what you do. I've just been involved in, in looking at some of that work, and, and it's really rather scandalous how how sloppy from a scientific point of view is a lot of the ed educational research that sponsors what our teachers are taught. It's just plain wrong. You, you have a very good section in the book that gives some empirical support for the idea of there being no generalized mental skill that, uh, that is at work with the chess experiments. What were the chess experiments that you, the, the, from the mid-20th century? Oh, that's right. Uh, it was a very, very important uh, experiment. A young man in the, in the Netherlands uh, uh, right after the war, uh, the Second World War, was doing his PhD in psychology, and he also happened to be a very good chess player. And uh, so he wrote, wrote about, well, what does it take to be expert in, in chess? And... Uh, he found out what it takes is something he called erudition. It takes having played a lot of chess games, basically. And I won't go into, uh, of course, all the details, but the, the important moment came when this uh, 
book fell into the hands of Herbert A. Simon, who's a Nobel Prize winner in psychology, a brilliant man. And uh, I think he was at Carnegie Mellon. And um, Herb Simon said, this is fantastic stuff. I'm going to have this book translated. But then, in addition, Simon then conducted some experiments of his own. There was one experiment in this book on chess uh, where the young man, oh dear, I'm blocking the name of the young Dutchman. Uh, I've forgotten it now. But uh, in any case, uh, one of his experiments was to see how uh, your chess ranking uh, correlated with being able to do a certain task. And the task was how many uh, pieces uh, could you reproduce after seeing an end game position in chess that had about 20 or 30 pieces on the board, 20 to about 20 pieces on the board. And uh, it turns out there was an almost precise correlation with your chess ranking and your ability to reproduce those pieces. And the young man rightly concluded that your ability to do that task, your, your skill, as it were, had to do with your erudition. You had to know a heck of a lot of past chess games and had correlated them in your mind in order to reproduce that position. Final little twist, and I'll quickly give it to you. And that was one that Herb Simon made. He said, well, let's try the experiment with the fancy chess players, see if they can reproduce a random position of chess pieces on the board. And of course, what happened was, and Simon probably predicted it, is that the novices and the experts all performed the same. Nobody could reproduce very well, only three or four pieces were reproduced. And so the erudition only worked when the uh, experts were able to do a real a real chess game, a real position based on their actual knowledge of past chess games. So that's it. The, the, show, the, the, the end of that was the, ski the skill of reproducing chess pieces on the board had, uh, was not a general skill. It was not a general skill. It had to do with your knowledge. Of chess. Yeah, but in, in that case, the, the assumed general skill would just be memory, right? It's sort yes, of an instant memory, a spatial yeah. memory of things. But when they used actual chess games that were 20 moves in, the people who knew a lot about chess were able to recognize patterns in the pieces that games would often lead to. They might even recognize certain defenses of, of, of certain pieces. And, and so they, they, could, they, they could recognize because of their knowledge, their actual knowledge of chess, chess strategy, chess movement, and the history of chess games. And, and that, that's what he means by the erudition, right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, Don, uh, why hasn't, this these findings i mean these are old findings this isn't new you were on this you were on this 40 years ago why hasn't this penetrated the ed schools are they just so committed to the child the individualism or do they fear that a shared knowledge would not be inclusive enough what, what is it exactly 
No, I think it's the former. They're stuck. Here's the, here's the thing. My theory is that a lot of uh, the ideas in it, it, are integrated with the notion that it's very that the real guide to education are what Dewey called the instincts and powers of the of the young child. In other words, they're analogizing human education with the instinctive growth of what Horace Mann called the lower orders of animated creation. Of course, dogs and cows and, 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 and pigs learn by instinct and develop by instinct. And Rousseau came along and said that the same thing is true of humans. We need to, uh, to educate ourselves properly, need to follow nature. And it's the in general religious faith almost that there's a kind of quasi blueprint in the young child uh, that needs to be followed for each individual so that that nature is fulfilled and that development is uh, done naturally and according to some implicit provenance. Well, uh, that idea has been so powerful. It's a, it's a quasi-religious idea, of course, that we should follow nature. But it turns out, and to me, this is the most important uh, new finding in the current book, is uh, what current brain science has found out about that very issue. And it, it, it just a little bit about the history of philosophy. Before Rousseau, wrote and had that idea of, a, of natural growth being the proper development of the child. John Locke also wrote uh, uh, several decades before saying that, no, he observed all this variety in human cultures and civilizations so that the mind of the child must be a blank slate to uh, learn all of these or to grow into all of these different forms that human history has thrown up. And now uh, modern brain science, current brain science, has discovered that essentially John Locke was right. So the mind of the young infant is a blank slate, at least that part of the mind that's subject to culture and to education uh, is a blank slate. And so black Babies and white babies and yellow babies, all these babies have the same blank slate. There's no inherent uh, structure to the, the human neocortex, which is this big part, why our brains are so big, this big part of the brain that gets schooled. So that means that the whole notion of uh, our educationists that you, we need to follow nature is a mirage. Nature is saying, no, no, you humans should follow culture and you should honor thy father and mother and do what they say, uh, as the Ten Commandments said. And as most uh, societies and civilizations have, have learned, that that insight in brain science, it, it seems to me to be, you know, to be absolutely 
uh, um, uh, uh, what, what they call a paradigm shift, uh, requiring a paradigm shift in our education. You, you did kind of a reverse movement in, in your career. You were, as I said, a, a, a literary theorist uh, at the top graduate schools in, in the country. Uh, but you, you actually wrote a book about composition uh, sort of the, for the freshman class in the 70s. You went and taught in local high schools, I believe. And with your Core Knowledge Foundation, you go all the way back down to the elementary grades. Why did you why did you go down the age ladder like that? Well, I uh, my I stopped at grade eight, uh, as you well know, and and because, well because I was interested in the egalitarian possibilities of education, like any good uh, Democrat with a small D would be, uh, and. When I've had that insight as to the, the importance of teaching young disadvantaged kids in a more systematic way, what advantaged kids know, so that they had the background knowledge to go forward. Uh, when I made that discovery, of course, the earlier you start, the more likely you are to achieve uh, a more just society. Uh, you regard the common school we go back to the 19th, the 19th century common school. That was something of a model for a democratic society. Is that how you look at it? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating to me that the early theorists of education, even um, before the Constitution was fully completed, but certainly right after the Constitution was ratified, uh, the theorists of what American education should be had a lot of elements uh, of uh, modernity in it. Well, they were all Lockeans, of course. Uh, uh, they weren't romantics like our current educationists are. And so they believed in the malleability of human nature, and they believed that we Americans should create our own culture. Uh, that's why uh, Noah Webster made his special dictionary, and he also made special school books uh, to Americanize the Americans. And uh, Benjamin Rush did, said the same thing. All of the, the, the early th thinkers of, about education in American life thought that here on this continent, we should create an, a new nation and a new person, the American, as it were and uh, leave uh, our ancestral uh, cultures behind. And my feeling is that actually that was a very, uh, you know, now sort of reinforced by this new uh, brain science, that that's not only a possibility, but, but it's something to, to some extent, at least among white colored people, white people, uh, blacks were, of course, uh, the problematic for the American dilemma. Uh, but that was the idea, that you could uh, create a new culture, a new nation, 
And uh, one of the themes of my book is uh, has to do with the term ethnicity. Uh, ethnicity is is a culture; it's learned, uh, and uh, it has nothing to do with race. And and recently, we've been confusing those two terms pretty drastically, and unfortunately, and we have to recognize that it's the job of uh, a democratic education to create a shared ethnicity among everybody. Everybody can have more than one ethnicity, that is more than one culture, no more than one language. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a big problem for the human mind, but what's needed in a human society is, is a commonality of uh, communication. And you can't have commonality of communication without commonality of background knowledge. Yeah. It, you know, Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, that was the big one that he did. The, the full title is Dictionary of the American Language. It's not English. It's American. And he wanted to say, well, this is our this is our language. And, and actually, the, you know, the materials, you, I don't know if you looked at the introduction to that. He, he, I mean, he has a lot, of, a lot of interesting ideas about the language that Adam and Eve spoke and, and other things. But it's very endearing, actually, to see this lexicography uh, put in something of a patriotic mode. And understanding this is really necessary. I mean, you talk about patriotism. You say that nationalism should not be a bad word. Well, it's, that's really a problem. I mean, you, if, it, it, since it has become a bad word for so many people, yeah, I, it's a word I guess I, I, I would like to avoid. However, I, and I just saw that uh, Jill Lepore has written a book called This America, which is, uh, uh, talks about nationalism and patriotism. And uh, I, I, I'm not exactly clear uh, where she comes down on the use of those words, but it, it's clear that the idea of nationalism uh, in a benign way, in looking internally, not saying we're the best in the world and, and we have to go off and kill other nations, uh, that kind of uh, militaristic nationalism is a core, rightly has a bad name. Uh, but that's not what patriotism really means. Uh, patriotism is turned to your own society, basically. And it says, be kind to your fellow citizens. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I have always liked the, uh, the motto of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternité. I won't say fraternity. Fraternité meant brotherhood, but that's already sexed uh, and gendered. And gendered, you don't want to have a gendered thing. So I decided, and I, what I realized with, that the word, I got this clue from a principal in the South Bronx. Uh, she she said, uh, we we tell our children to be kind. That's a real patriotism, and. I thought that was a wonderful remark. And it turns out that the word kind uh, essentially says fraternité. Uh, the, you know, the, Is it the same root as kin? That's right. Kin, kind. Absolutely. And 
uh, sure, kin and kind and, and genus or whatever, you know, they're, uh, they're, all, they're all related. Well, you know, on, on the patriotism issue, uh, Don, you dedicate the work. Last question. We'll, we'll wrap this up. Uh, there's so much more in the book that we can, we can keep talking about. But I'll get to the dedication to Richard Rorty who wrote a book, Achieving Our Country. And you mentioned the book there, which was arguing for, I think, the kind of patriotism uh, that, I mean, Rorty was a man of the left, uh, but he was, he was very committed to a form of patriotism. Uh, he was your colleague at Virginia. Were you close to him? Did he shape your oh, ideas? He was my dear friend and we taught courses together. And uh, yes, I was so sorry, his premature death. Uh, anyway, yes, and uh, he, by the way, distinguished the uh, what he called the cultural left from the political left in that book, and said this overemphasis on our differences is a big mistake, and uh, we're all in it together, that sort of thing, and and we should we need to get together if we want to have get a more uh, generous and uh, by the way, that that has the same root, doesn't it? Generous and kind and kind, and uh, <laughs> all of those sort of pro-community words. And by the way, it, just another footnote on this point, Mark, has been a very uh, agreeable conversation. One uh, one point about. Uh, the idea of altruism or kindness and patriotism instead of selfishness and uh, self-interest. It, it, there was an article by uh, an evolutionary psychologist who's called, uh, who's David Wilson, and a sociobiologist, that's E.O. Wilson, both of them quite famous, uh, they wrote an article together in which they concluded at the end that selfishness may often win within a group across the biological species, but altruistic societies always defeat selfish societies. And I thought that was a good <laughs> general insight for uh, American policy in American democracy, that the idea of patriotism, kindness, generosity, those are ideas, altruism, those are ideas that need to make a comeback, and, and make a comeback in a kind of universalistic way uh, if we want uh, America to flourish. The book is How to Educate a Citizen, The Power of Shared Knowledge to Unify a Nation. Edie Hirsch, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.